0: Well, I've looked forward to this morning for so long, I've lost count for how many months, even years it's been. So our speaker this morning is someone who's been a spiritual father figure in my life for almost 24 years. Sundar Krishnan was ra- born and raised in an Orthodox Hindu family in India, New Delhi, India. He came to Christ his freshman year of college, and uh, through Youth for Christ ministry, and he went to schools undergrad over there. He came to the States to go to MIT, you know, that little easy to get into school, MIT over there in Boston, um, and studied engineering there. He went to work for the Atomic Energy of Canada and did a bunch of work in engineering for I think it was 11 years. So I have that right sooner, about 11 years. And then the Lord called him into pastoral ministry. He served at Rexdale Alliance Church up in Toronto, Canada for 30 plus years. So the reason we didn't get to see very much of him is because when we were gathering here, that's he was doing all of this up in Toronto for so many years. He's recently retired. He and his wife, Shamal, have wonderful children and grandchildren. I've got a little bio there in your notes. If you haven't pulled out your notes and fired up your app, you can see a little bio there on him. But let me say a couple things about um, what I love most about Sundar Krishnan and all that he's meant in my life personally. If I was to point to one person who has affected my view and understanding of what it means to be a husband, a father, a pastor and a preacher, I would point to this man. So Lily and Kalen have no idea how Sunder and Shamila Christian are really behind all the parenting they've been receiving. Here they thought it was just mom and dad when really it's a whole other generation. So she can tap Sunder on the shoulder and blame him for some of those things. Um, but above all else, I'm most deeply indebted to Sunder because it was in 1996. That he taught me how to listen to God. He taught me how to listen for the voice of the Lord and to follow that. And for the last 20 plus years or so, I've tried to put that in, into practice. So, would you join me in giving a warm welcome to Sundar Christian? Thank you, my
1: friend. And it really is an incredible honor for me to be here as well. You know, Bruce Wilkinson, one of uh, a really gifted teacher, once said the, the measure of a teacher, it's measured by the number of his students who surpass him. And I think I'm a good teacher because Eric has far surpassed me. Everything that I have taken, he has maximized and taken to a whole new level. And those are the great joys. Your children and your grandchildren, both your physical ones as well as your spiritual ones, are the ones that give you the greatest amount of faith and joy. So it's as much my pleasure as it is his to be here with you this morning. The name Leah Sharibu is probably not a household name here. She was one among many young women who was captured by a terrorist organization in Africa some time ago. All but she had been since released. She will not be, refuses, or she isn't being released because she refuses to surrender her faith in Jesus. And for that, the terrorist organization that captured her has threatened to kill her. She's 15 years old. She's one of approximately 215 million Christians around the world who face persecution from harassment all the way through to the threat of martyrdom. Today happens to be International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. If you have some time today, just check out the website IDOP.com, International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. So you get a little bit of a feel of what the body of Christ in many parts of the world is going through. Here, closer to home, both in the country that I live in, which is Canada, and here in Toronto, uh, in Canada and the States, it's getting increasingly difficult and hostile to practice the Christian faith. Especially in the universities, and in some of the professions, especially in the medical profession in Canada, there is more and more overt hostility, ridicule, and obstacles placed in people's paths just because they are followers of Jesus. Add to that the internal chaos in our lives at times where the circumstances of our life, and especially unanswered prayer, seems to mark the very God that we believe in. Maybe in a group this size, there is a single follower of Jesus who has been waiting and praying for God to bring another committed follower of Jesus into their life so they could get married and serve together. And after years of waiting, it hasn't happened. And so the temptation becomes more powerful and more attractive to maybe lower your standards, look for a relationship outside. Maybe there's a married couple here who have discovered after marriage that it's far more challenging a proposition than anything they ever dreamed of. And that marital bliss that was so guaranteed while you were still single seems to be kind of far from your actual experience. And maybe you've been checking out, just emotionally perhaps, maybe even daydreaming about finding another soulmate. Maybe we've even stumbled across someone who might be a likely candidate for that. Or perhaps you're happily married, but don't have children. On a a mission field recently where workers from our church were involved, I happened to hear about one such individual. An unanswered prayer in that direction is calling into question the value of prayer at all, which is kind of a devastating doubt if you're working in a limited access nation with very hostile people. Or perhaps it's in the job situation. Where the long-awaited promotion yet hasn't come along with it, the financial security. Or maybe the sense of significance and prestige that goes along with that. And so there's a temptation to fall into line with the common practices around you, to do an end run around legitimate process, to backbite, to push your way forward. Or perhaps it's a lack of friendship and acceptance. I know of at least one young adult today whose downward spiral away from the faith began when he couldn't find a friend in school. So when you take all of these things together, the external pressures along with these internal realities that seem to mock and ridicule faith, the temptations to... Either check out mentally while maintaining an external form of religion or actually checking out altogether increases in power and attractiveness. Is there a single message from God's word that can maybe speak to all those situations? There happens to be one. It was just recently drawn to my attention, uh, not because it was on my radar screen, but I was uh, asked to speak at another church not too far away from where I live, and they assigned me this topic, and now I know why. It's a story from the life of Daniel. It's taken from chapter three, the well-known story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you've grown up in the church, you probably remember flannel graph versions of that. (laughs) Yeah, it gives away my age, right? (laughs) So for those who may not be familiar with the story, or just by way of setting up context, let me remind you very quickly. When Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the dominant world power at that time, invaded the southern kingdom of Judah, that was all that was left of the 12 tribes of Israel, and took them away into captivity, along with them were many teenagers that were taken away. Daniel was probably one of them. It was a practice of the Babylonians to choose the most intelligent and the most brilliant of the people that they captured, and train those young men in the culture and the language and the literature and the philosophy of Babylon so that they will serve the king well. Daniel distinguished himself along with some of his friends. And in the second chapter of the book of Daniel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and the dream centers around a massive statue with a head of gold and the rest of the um, statue was made up of different material. And no one was able to interpret this for him and the king in his typical wrath was sentenced every wise man in his his kingdom to death. Well, this came to Daniel's attention and Daniel interpreted the dream for him. And the heart of the interpretation was that the head of gold represented King Nebuchadnezzar, his present uh, kingdom that he was in. And the rest of the image made of different material would represent other kingdoms that would follow him. Nebuchadnezzar was so impressed with this, he was blown away. He elevated Daniel to a top position in the province of Babylon. And at his request, Three of his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were raised to very powerful position. That's the backdrop when this happens. Chapter three, verse one. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and whose breadth was six cubits. Now, why an image of gold? Well, we don't know, but we can make a reasonable deduction. You remember Daniel's interpretation was that the head of gold belonged to him and the rest of it was not made of gold. So this was Nebuchadnezzar's way of perhaps convincing himself that no, his kingdom was not going to give way to other kingdoms, but his kingdom was going to endure even after his death. And so the entire statue was made of gold. And then here's a power play, further reinforcing his own sense of invincibility. Then King Nebuchadnezzar set to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood up before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud. You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. Well, everybody who was who, who in the world of politics was there. All the rulers, the various levels of rulers described by all these words that we don't know the meaning of at all including the judges and the magistrates. It was to reinforce to everyone in this show of power who was ultimate boss, Nebuchadnezzar himself. But then in addition to that, there was all this music. What was all the music doing? Every kind of music, it says. Well, for those of you at the seminar yesterday, I happened to mention in one of those seminars that uh, Professor Alan Bloom wrote a book called The Closing of the American Mind a few decades ago. And in that, he made this observation about music that music provides unquestioned authentication of any activity that accompanies it. Music provides unquestioned authentication of any activity or truth that accompanies it. That's why we sing. And we know that when we sing, I believe, rather than just have someone read the words of the Apostles' Creed, its credibility increases. And so, Nebuchadnezzar understood this one. And to lend further credence to his display of power, There was not only all the political who's who that were gathered together, but powerful music as well. So that together, the conviction might well up even in the hearts of the people. Yeah, this king really is great. but he also knew that that might not be enough to convince everybody, and so there's a threat as well. If you don't do this, in spite of the show of power, the image of gold, all the people gathered here, this magnificent music that lends credibility to the truth, I'm trying to tell you, if you don't worship, you're going to be thrown immediately into the fiery furnace. Well, as the story goes on, we're told that everybody capitulates except these three Hebrews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar probably didn't see them, but it was brought to his attention. Probably there were several jealous Babylonians who bristled at the idea of these Hebrew slaves being set above them, and here was their chance to get them into trouble. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, is furious, but you can tell the extent of his admiration because he actually gives them a second chance. Even though he had just announced that they would be immediately thrown into the furnace, he liked these men so much that he said, Okay, listen, I'll give you one more chance. But if you do not worship, he said, you will be immediately cast into a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand? (laughs) Notice he doesn't say like some of the ancient Near Eastern monarchs would say, who is the God that can deliver you out of my God's hand? He said, no, who is the God that will deliver you out of my hand? He had now elevated himself to the status of a God as well. That's how drunk this man was with power. Now put yourself in the place of these three men it would have been easy for them to rationalize along these following lines. Well, this is only a hunk of stone or whatever it was made of of gold. Really, when I'm bowing down to it, I'm not really bowing down to a god. Isaiah one of their own prophets and they probably had access to the prophet of Isaiah I'll come back to that a bit later uh, Mocked these idols he said do something good or bad so we can be afraid of you They're just hunks of stone so I'm really not bowing to any God and besides wouldn't it be much wiser for me to remain in power in Babylon So I can continue to influence all these Babylonians with my faith in Yahweh makes a lot of sense, right? He could easily have they could easily have rationalized uh, their bowing down but what would they be saying to the gathered group, to all the power brokers in society? Because the open challenge was, which God is able to deliver you out of my hand? By bowing down, they would inevitably also say there is no God who can do that, and that they could not do. And so comes a staggering declaration of faith. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, if these be so, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand. Uh, You want to know who is powerful enough? Our God is powerful enough, and he's going to do it. And then comes the three words that are probably the most amazing demonstration of faith in the Bible, but if not. Our God is able. We want to tell you that, Nebuchadnezzar. If this is an open challenge, God versus God will tell you who is God and who can deliver us, and he's going to do it, but... If not, we're still not going to worship you. Has to be the most staggering declaration of faith. Nebuchadnezzar was rocked on his heels. (laughs) What kind of faith is this that even takes into account the possibility that their faith will not be answered? And this man who was engaging in a show of power is being challenged by these three Hebrews. You don't have power over us. (laughs) Forget about the fact that your kingdom is going to be replaced by another kingdom. You don't even have power right now. Can you imagine the fury of this king? Anyway, our story ends there. What happened afterwards, you know, read it, and read it from these lenses for today, but I want to stop at that point because I want to talk about those three words, but if not. How do you build a bridge between Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and a but if not faith to the society that we live in today which seems to be so far removed from Babylonian culture? You know what it does? It clarifies for us what worship really is. I don't know about you, but most Christians have a definition of worship that's fairly narrow. If you ask them, what what is worship? They think about what happens on a Sunday morning, which, by the way, is worship. We call it a worship service. And even more narrowing, they think about the songs that we sing during the worship service, which is why you might run across, I have run across statements like, how was the service today? Oh, the preaching was poor, but the worship was great. (laughs) Yeah? Oh, the worship was poor and the preaching was great. Oh boy, you never seen preaching and worship come together like that. What do you mean when they say that? They're thinking about music, right? Now, it's true, the music is worship, and we've talked about the power of music. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's declaration expands our definition of understanding of worship way beyond what happens on a Sunday morning in service. It is for them a declaration of who their God was and what he would give to them and what he gave to them is far more important than all of the prestige and the power and the pleasure that would come by them retaining their present positions. That's worship. And so I just crafted a definition based on this text. There are other ways you can define worship. Here's worship. Worship is a conviction that shapes all of life's choices so as to declare to everyone who might be aware that God is our ultimate good and what he gives us matters more than anything else that we might define as essential for a meaningful life. Can I repeat that again? Worship is the conviction that shapes all of life's choices so as to declare to everyone who might be aware that God is our ultimate good and what he gives us matters more than anything else that we might define as essential for a meaningful life. So going back to some of those hypothetical but realistic situations that I painted, this is what worship might be in each of those situations. For that single man or that single woman whose prayers for a partner have not been answered, worship is to say, my God is able to touch someone, anyone, anywhere in this world that he wants to and bring them into my life at the right time. My God is able, but if not, I will not take a shortcut. I will not settle for sex outside of marriage. I will not lower my standards for who I want as a partner in my life. I will take every unmet need and let it drive me to Jesus that he might satisfy me through his word and through his worship. And in the meantime, I will harness some of the advantages of being single to deepen the kingdom of God in my life and to broaden the kingdom of God in the world. That's worship. Worship for that disillusioned married man or woman might be something like this. My God is able to change my spouse's heart. My God is able to breathe fresh life into my marriage. But if not, I will not give in to the temptation to check out emotionally. I will still serve and love as best as I can. And if there are children that God has given to me, I will transmit my faith to them by my life and by my words. And I will use the gifts that God has given to me to deepen his life in me and to broaden his kingdom through me. to the man or the woman who wanted to have children and have not had any children. Worship is to say, my God is able to give me sons and daughters. But if not, I will continue to worship him. I will continue to declare that, according to the prophet Isaiah, he said, I will give you a memorial and a name greater than sons and daughters, and I will invest in the next generation that is around me that I might experience the joy of harvesting spiritual sons and daughters as I transmit the faith to them. And for those unmet rewards, even deserved rewards of promotion and recognition and satisfaction in the workplace, worship is to say, my God is able at the right time to promote me, at the right time to give me the kind of recognition that may be rightly due me. But in the meantime, But if not, I will still do the best job that I can with my present responsibilities. I will make the person whom I respond to successful by delivering the best work that I can. And I will pray for those people and bless those who might even be the human obstacles to my being promoted. And I will trust in God to give me the financial security, the significance, the acceptance, the prestige that I might have been looking for from my work. Those and other kinds of life situations, a similar declaration, my God is able, but if not, that is the heart of worship. And by the way, what should happen here on Sunday morning should be to send you out believing those kind of convictions. That's the function of what happens on Sunday morning, the singing, the preaching, is to send you out from Monday to Saturday to say, my God is able, but if not, that's worship. All right, we we understand now what their declaration meant, and what it means for you and me today. But it just begs the question, where did they get this from? I mean, this conviction, of the absolute supremacy of God, independent of circumstances, and that in the midst of this naked show of power, this conviction that God was sovereign, that it was not Nebuchadnezzar, but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses, Elijah, Elisha, the Moses, the God of Samuel, and the God of David, and the God of Isaiah, and the God of Jeremiah, he is in charge, and therefore we will not. We're not told in chapter three of Daniel, but if you continue reading the book of Daniel, you will come across a prayer by Daniel in chapter nine, and you will discover two things in that prayer. First of all, it was triggered by him reading the scroll of Jeremiah. He was reading in Jeremiah, so he obviously had access to the prophet Jeremiah's writings at that point. And then the subsequent prayer, while the details are different, its basic structure and shape and heart is very similar to a prayer that Isaiah prayed, and you'll find that recorded in chapter 63 and 64. So it's quite likely that the scrolls of Isaiah and Jeremiah were available to Daniel and his friends. It is entirely likely that those sweeping declarations in the book, especially Isaiah, of the absolute lordship and sovereignty of God over the nations of the world and his promise to be with his people in times of trial and testing and in exile would have sustained these men. So what if from the beginning of their exile, these men had steeped themselves that was very likely. In their, in their sacred scriptures, they certainly became a people of the book and prayer in exile. And especially since Isaiah chapter 40 to 66 were written with the circumstances of the exilic and the post-exilic Israel in mind. So what I want to do this morning, either by way of reminder, if you're familiar, and for those of you who may not have read Isaiah enough to remember, I want to read some of these passages that might have functioned in this way. But whether or not they function that way in their life, they can function that way in your life. (laughs) So I want you to think about those life situations that I painted and the the others where you you would stand up and say, no, here's my but if not situation. I want you to allow the Spirit of God to let these awesome declarations of God enter into those situations, bring him in, bring him in into those situations that you are facing that maybe nobody else knows but you. And allow this word, because faith comes by hearing the word of Christ, allow this word to build that my God is able, but if not faith into your lives, okay? Listen as I read. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purpose, so shall it stand. This is the purpose that is purpose concerning the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out over the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed it, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. And this one, so perfectly suited for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. And thus says the Lord who is anointed to Cyrus. Now, Cyrus was the king of Persia who would follow Nebuchadnezzar. Thus says the Lord who is anointed to Cyrus. I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord. There is no other. And then finally, I am God and there is no other. I am God there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. It's declarations like these that they immerse themselves in, that contributed to the I will not faith in their crisis moment. And you know, this is but a small portion from Isaiah. In my Bible reading plan that I follow every year, I get to Isaiah on September the 28th. I'm sorry, September the 8th. And on October the 2nd, which happens to my birthday, I end Isaiah and begin Jeremiah. And so for the last two months before I came here, I have been in those two texts. Probably the text that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego meditated upon. I can think of no better gift from God that the month before my birthday and the month after my birthday, I'm immersed in declarations like this. You see, when, and this is just one book of the Bible, when regularly working our way through all of scriptures becomes a settled habit in our lives, and you've heard that from Eric many times, I'm sure, then we will keep on seeing these pictures, this revelation of the glory of God from many different angles, from the history books, from the prophetic books, from the apocalyptic books, and from the poetical books, and from the teaching sections of the Bible. And really, (coughs) that is the purpose of that book. It is the heart of the Gospel. That's another truncated understanding we have, not just of worship, but what is the gospel? What's the heart of the gospel? Well, Jesus died for my sins, I prayed the sinner's prayer, and I'm going to heaven. Yeah, true, but, but such a tiny slice of what the good news. What is the heart of the gospel? The Apostle Paul tells us in Second Corinthians chapter 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's the gospel. The heart of the gospel is the glory of Jesus. And then he said, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ says, Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let's shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Put those two things together and you get, what is the heart of the gospel? The heart of the gospel is the glory of God in the face and the person of Jesus Christ. If we're gonna build a but if not kind of faith, in the circumstances of our life that challenge us, and I've just suggested a few of them, representative examples, then we're going to need the steady, lifelong immersion in the word that progressively enables us to see the glory of God finding its ultimate revelation in the person of Jesus. Now, reading and understanding, though, is only one thing. To get it from here into here, so that it grips our feelings of what Edwards used to call and affect the inclinations of the will, which is what causes us to obey. That's another thing altogether. In fact, that same text tells us it's going to take God commanding the light to shine in our hearts. And so we need to set this reading of God's word in the context of praying God's word and in the context of asking him to do those things in us, to make that word come alive. And while we are many, many prayers that we will pray, I have discovered that one prayer is foundational, whatever actual form it takes, and that is, show me your glory. Show me your glory, If this is the heart of the gospel. If this is what will build a but if not faith, show me your glory. We find it first on the lips of Moses. And you know, it's pretty remarkable uh, because when Moses prays in Exodus chapter 33, show me your glory, He's already seen more glory than you and I will ever see in our lives. <laughs> he has encountered God in the burning bush. He has seen him throwing down the staff of the shepherd's rod and it becoming a snake, picking it up again and becoming a shepherd's rod once again. He's seen the glory of God in the ten plagues that were in, unleashed upon Pharaoh. He's seen the glory of God in the opening of the Red Sea that made a path for his own people to on dry land and then The Red Sea swallowing up to completely take over Pharaoh's army and destroy it. He's seen the glory of God descend upon Mount Sinai in unapproachable darkness and blackness and fire. He's seen all of that. And he says, show me your glory. Because Moses knew that yesterday's glory was not going to be sufficient for today's responsibilities. We need a fresh, ongoing revelation of that glory. And so we set our reading in the context of show me your glory. Now, there's something even more remarkable. At the end of Moses' life, in the book of Deuteronomy, which is his last sermon to people, his people before Joshua takes them into the promised land. He says, Lord, I have begun to see your greatness. Is that really, Moses? You've just begun to see his greatness. (laughs) I haven't seen any of those yet. And you've just begun to see his greatness. Well, what else is left? If all that he saw and experienced was just the beginning of the greatness of God, what was the end of it? He didn't know, but you and I do because we live further down biblical revelation times. Because much later on in the Old Testament, when some of the exiles had come back after Cyrus became king and took over from Nebuchadnezzar. a group of people went back, a small group of people went back to rebuild the temple. It was a fairly pathetic effort at building the temple. Nothing in comparison to the magnificent temple that Solomon had built that Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed. In fact, some of the old timers who had heard about that were moaning and groaning and grumbling and saying, ah, what is this pathetic looking building? And and the prophet Haggai says, so you think this building is not glorious? He said, but I am telling you that this temple is going to have greater glory than that temple. They couldn't even imagine how that could be, but we know the answer because God showed up in the form of a human being and walked into the temple one day. That was the ultimate glory. Moses had only begun to see glory, but you and I have lived on the other side because the Bible tells us the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, full of grace and truth. That's glory. The ultimate manifestation of glory is this amazing blending of grace and truth, of majesty and meekness, of the glory of the lion and the glory of the lamb. The glory of the lion is my God is able. The glory of the lamb is but if not. You see how the two work together? And we've seen it in Jesus. And so as we read through the scriptures, as we pray, show me your glory, it is this, it is this that we are longing for the Holy Spirit to keep deepening within us. The majesty and the meekness of Jesus, the glory of the lamb, the all-conquering lion, and the glory of the suffering lamb of God. And to the extent that this prayer is answered, to that extent we will continue to experience the but if not faith. Now as I draw this message, so... So here's what I suggest. Learn to see his glory in the word. Seek his glory in prayer. Then you will increasingly prefer his glory in obedience and proclaim that glory in witness. Say that once again. See his glory in his word. Seek his glory in a show me your glory prayer. Then you will increasingly prefer his glory at those forks in the road. When, but if not, faith is required and then you will proclaim that glory to those around you as well but it begins with that seeing and that seeking now as I draw this message to a close I want to focus a little bit on the next generation and tell you the story of two kings and with that I'm finished you see, it is quite possible that there might be some people here who are kind of my vintage you know, you're this end of, uh, near the end of your life you're not likely to see burning, fiery, furnace kind of choices set before you you're either happily single or happily married. Uh, uh, you have good children. You have had a satisfying job. And you kind of look at it and say, none of those things that you portrayed uh, fit me. Uh, and the kind of life I'm living right now, where I'm at, I'm not likely to be put into a situation where I have to face a but-if-not kind of faith. So really, where am I going to get the energy to, to, to live like this, to see and seek like you're talking about? Well, let me just tell you a couple of things. and That's one I can speak to you from my personal experience because that more or less describes the situation I'm in. First of all, we'll never know when we are gonna be plunged into a situation where a but if not faith is gonna be required. The day before Nebuchadnezzar had the statue, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego's lives were cruising along. In positions of power with prestige. <laughs> And then Daniel had to go and interpret this dream the way he did. Precipitated this uh, demagogue's declaration of power and immediately they were precipitated into a crisis situation. You and I don't know when that might happen to us and the time to prepare for the crisis is not the crisis. The time to prepare for the crisis is these lifelong habits of seeing and seeking. So that when the crisis comes, you will say, my God is able, but if not. So there's no room for being casual, not any one of us. But secondly, even more important, I think, is even though things may be okay for us, as I mentioned to you, our children and our grandchildren are going to grow up in a world that is much more hostile, much more difficult, much closer to the kind of situation that Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego grew up in. Uh, So my continual prayer for my next two generations after me is, Lord, let them see your glory in the word and let them seek your glory in prayer. This a story of two kings in the Bible, and they inspire me in different ways. First one is a man named Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a good king. In fact, he restored the temple, did some amazing things there. But near the end of his life, he got a visit from uh, a delegation from uh, Babylon, and he showed them everything that was in his kingdom. And when Isaiah the prophet comes to him and says, this is what you did, this is what it means. Isaiah says this to Hezekiah. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house shall be carried away to Babylon. And some of your own sons shall be taken away. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Not a very good prognosis for his successors. Hezekiah's response is unbelievable. You know what he says? Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you've spoken is good. For he thought, why not if there will be peace and security in my days? I mean, it's it's staggering to read that. Basically what he's saying is, oh yeah, all this trouble is going to fall upon my sons and my grandsons. But you know what? That's a good word because I'm okay. That's what he says. Now in sharp contrast to that, was a king named Josiah. Josiah was Hezekiah's grandson. Josiah also did some work of repairing the temple in the book of the law, probably the book of Deuteronomy, maybe the Pentateuch, I don't know, probably Deuteronomy was found. And when they read it to Josiah, he was heartbroken because of all that his predecessors had done in disobeying God. And so he humbles himself before God and he sends to the prophetess a woman named Huldah and he said, what should I do? And she sends a message very similar to the message that was given to Hezekiah. She said, tell this man, she tells the the delegation, go tell this man, Josiah, that because he humbled himself before God, everything's going to be okay with him. But it's too late to save his people. He could have responded just the way Hezekiah did, but he didn't. Here's what he said. And the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites, all the people both great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant. He made them listen to all of Deuteronomy. You can do that when you're a king, by the way. That had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to keep his commandments with all his heart and all his soul. Then he made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin join in. All his days they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. May it never be said of you and me, my brothers and sisters, that we were like Hezekiah. Let it be said indeed that we were instead like King Josiah who wouldn't settle just for good news in their own generation, but lived flat out for the sake of the generation that was to fall, to model for them a but if not faith, so they in turn will be able to stand at the fork in the road a generation from now and say, my God is able, but if not, I will still worship Jesus, my Lord, thank you.
0: I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, if you can see farther ahead, if I can see farther ahead, it's because I've stood on the shoulders of giants. So I've stood on this man's <laughs> shoulders for 24 plus years. And one of the areas that he helped me see a little farther ahead with has to do with a practice you're very familiar with here, and it's the role of a benediction. So I thought I'd have sooner to share uh, for, a, it's just 30 seconds or so, just kind of what the backdrop for you was on this whole entry into benediction that you passed on to us that's now just a way of life here, Uh, so.
1: Well, you know, it was actually my first sabbatical in uh, Regent College, and I was taking a course on spirituality and ministry from Eugene Peterson. And uh, at one point, it was almost like a throwaway line. He said, look, don't just say good morning and goodbye, you're dismissed to your people. He said, your first words to your people, you're calling them to worship. He said when they leave, the last words they need to hear from you is a blessing, not just you're dismissed. And from that day, I just completely changed the way I entered the services. And also during the rest of the sabbatical, there were at least four other encounters where either I was able to bless someone or I was blessed by someone. And I just experienced the power of those benedictions. So that's how God got it all started.
0: And clarify again, the difference between a
1: benediction and a prayer. Yeah, in, in a prayer, you're actually talking to God for the people. In a benediction, in a blessing, you're actually speaking to the people. The word comes from two Latin words, bene, which means good, and dicta, which means words. So you're actually speaking good words to the people. You're not praying for them. Maybe it's a subtle distinction and uh, benedictions flow into prayers as well, but it's yeah. just a, a way of looking at it that's different. And
0: then as you stepped into all this, you talked about how the congregation would regularly respond, more yeah. comments regarding...
1: Oh, yeah, listen, right? I, I very quickly after that, at the end of the door, I start at the on the door at the end of the sermon, and my comments on messages start dropping rapidly and comments on the benediction started rising up. You know? <laughs> In fact, one guy told me a week, a two weeks he said, I played your sermon 22 times this week. He said, but it wasn't for the sermon. I needed to listen to the benediction. I'm not exaggerating. He played it 22 times to be able to get to the benediction. You
0: know? <laughs> Well, why don't you stand with me and uh, Sundar and I will, we'll remain down over here. If you want to hang out, uh, chat with him, introduce yourself to him. We'll stay down over here for interaction. Mm-hmm. And then Sundar, I'd love it if you would send us out. Right. Uh, I want to do to a sure. blessing very specific. When I preached the sermon for the
1: first time a few weeks ago, the Lord brought clearly on my heart. And I'd like everybody who's 25 years and younger, if you're going to come to the front. And if you're 25 in your spirit, you can do that, too. <laughs> you but want 25 you are, are coming, years and younger? It's, it's, a, yeah, it's that next generation that I'm concerned about. You know, we talk about it. I just feel free to come on up. 25 and younger, just come on up.
0: 25 and younger, come yeah. on up. we got but this whole the, these,
1: these are the people that are going to face a much more hostile environment than we are. And they need that double portion of the spirit of God. And so this is what God laid on my heart when I freed this message first. And I, three or four times I've had occasion to preach, and I've done it everywhere. Just come right in, guys. Hey Ian,
0: come on, yeah. You come up here and and the rest of you, just
1: stretch forth your hand. Okay, you're going to join me in blessing them. You stretch out your hand and join me stand. in this benediction. Yeah. Okay. Here's my blessing for you today. I want to bless you with the faith to be able to believe that first song we heard this morning, that you will believe what God says about you. With these words, I want to neutralize every negative word that has ever been spoken about you by anyone else. I want to bless you with the ability to recognize truth that God is speaking to you about, that you will deal only with him. And then I want to bless you with courage, the kind of courage that is will be able to stand at the forks in the road and be able to say, my God, Jesus is able. But if not, I will worship only him because what he will give to me is better than what anybody else will promise to give me if I don't worship him. Go in Jesus' name and change the world. Amen. Amen.